everybody. This is Jim Jansen. Welcome to the EquipCast. I am your host, and I got a cool conversation for you today. I sit down with J.P. DeGance. Uh, J.P. is the author of Endgame, one of the founders of Comunio, a marriage ministry equipper. Their mission is to help parishes become an evangelization hub for healthy relationships. Uh, JP talks about how you can reach the felt needs of people and use their desire for healthy relationships to draw them to the gospel, how to fill your church with young people again. He talks about this very cool ministry engagement ladder of how we often make the mistake of starting our marriage enrichment and outreach on step four, and we miss all the foundation that has to precede it. It's a great conversation today. Uh, You're going to love this. If you have any interest in marriage or family ministry, if you know someone who is married, who maybe came from a marriage, a relationship, a family, you're going to love today's podcast. Take a listen. Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. JP DeGance, welcome to the EquipCast. How are you? I'm great, Jim. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I am so excited about this conversation. We were, you know, before we hit record here, we're talking about a mutual friend, Jared Smythe. Uh, I've known... Uh, a little bit about your work with Comunio. You're an author of, of the book Endgame on on my desk. It's been it, very cool. Uh, you know, we, we've I had to like stop us like, wait, we, we actually have to like hit record here because <laughs> we're having so much fun, free podcast hangout. JP, we kind of have a, a tradition here on the Equipcast. Like, we want to give everybody an opportunity just to s- share a little bit about their story, and in particular, like, you know, when did you first encounter Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, from a, a very young age, you know, I, I I love this question because oftentimes in a, the right home environment, it's a hard one to answer because Jesus was so part of your of yeah. how you were raised, right? And so, yeah, I grew up in a in a home with parents who just deeply love our Lord, and we prayed at a a habit of prayer as a family each night, and we used to have. I remember as a kid on on uh, weekend nights. There would occasionally be Legion of Mary meetings in the home and all the kids, we'd have to be out in the backyard eating pizza so that the adults could have their, the Legion meetings without us. There's six kids in my home. I'm number five. And we would, uh, could be very, fairly rambunctious. Now, one of my favorite stories growing up is that when my parents would go out on a date, they would certainly try to make sure that we still prayed and hey, let let the oldest brothers know that hey, while we're gone, make sure you say the you guys say the rosary while we're gone. That's awesome. So, so uh, my my brothers, of course, is perhaps with a form of sort of Jesuit precision, uh, were would gather us all together. We'd sit around the table and they would say, "Look, guys, put put your hands in the middle of the table. On three, we're going to say the rosary. One, two, three. The rosary. And then they'd say, look, if mom and dad ask, <laughs> we, said we, said the rosary. The rosary, we said the rosary, you're not lying. Okay. So just that's, <laughs> that is what you say. Wow. So anyway, <laughs> but um, uh, one of those older brothers is a, uh, one of my older brothers is a priest now down in Vera Beach, Florida. But anyways, uh, 
Uh, it was a great, uh, great uh, background. And my parents got me interested in in the life issue, going to pro-life activities. And it got me motivated in college to increasingly get uh, interested and involved in public policy process and politics. And and anyways, that led led me ultimately to come uh, make a move professionally after college to uh, move to DC and and try to save the world by focusing on politics, Jim, and you know got that done. You know, and then made you know change gear. So so you're welcome for yeah. saving the country through politics. Just kidding. So <laughs> well, you know, I was almost there. I mean, I, you know, had I had a little bit more self discipline, that was the route. I was a poli sci major, and I was headed towards politics. I just could not keep myself focused on studying for the LSAT uh, when I was having so much fun being a missionary. Yes, yes. JB, tell people a little bit more about your your background professionally, because I I love how that has contributed to the way you're approaching ministry now. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Well, coming out of school, I worked on some political campaigns and then worked at a place called the Leadership Institute. One of my key mentors, a great guy named Morton Blackwell, and I uh, ended up getting going to work for Charles Koch at uh, Koch Industries on a, a special projects team where we, mm-hmm. uh, this is back in the earlier part of the 2000s and focusing on trying to advance economic freedom and um, worked there and was asked to become a vice president at Americans for Prosperity and worked on a number of large public policy initiatives and early on in the uh, with working with folks on the development and application of, of predictive analytics and and the public pol- in the political world saw the use Are, of that wait wait now for, for the right for the for the folks who don't know what is predictive analytics it's marketing speak right so you know it's been around you could argue as long as direct mail's been around um, okay which is which is the idea that people who engage in certain consumer behaviors if you know if if you buy certain magazines you're more likely to buy other products right right and the more the advance of consumer product marketing where coupon mailings and and uh, uh, just all of that are spending habits mm-hmm. uh, large advertisers share that data and um, it's sort of been ubiquitous for a long time what started to happen was folks just started to use it you know uh for the last, gosh, 40 years, every sitting president has mm-hmm. used it in different ways in their reelect or election. And um, it's been used in finance. It's been used to sell diapers. It's been used to sell baby wipes, right? I mean, this is all the stuff behind the cookies and the website, like tracking every move we make, every interest and click we show because that's data for marketers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and so that, you know, you've got other disciplines like, you know, different forms of market research, right? Before a campaign like a um and I mean this as an in an advertising campaign before you you roll out an advertisement, you frequently test it to see, you know, right. you focus group it, you uh, I was involved in in efforts to try to, you know, uh, measure the effectiveness of messages and just saw the use of, you know, when you work in politics, you have a deadline, right? November is always coming. And so you've got a certain finite amount of resources and you've got to husband those resources well and deploy them in a way to achieve uh, a victory, right? And right. I started and asking the question, I'm like, you know, 
it became apparent to me that, you know, there's things a lot more important than politics out there. And it's interesting that other those areas that are more important, oftentimes, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally act with a much lower level of sophistication, right? And don't use the very best tools and resources out there. And, you know, when it's brought into the church, I know some people criticize this as, you know, using these kinds of best practices can be uh, sometimes Catholic ink or something of that nature, some sort of church incorporated. Mm, sure. I, I sort of spin that back around and say, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that the, there's some sort of gospel mandate to be unsophisticated, right? God is the author of our knowledge and wisdom, and and it's sort of uh, morally higher to intentionally check our brains at the door of advancing the gospel, right? So, so yeah. I think that that became important to me, and on a personal level. Uh, God, I, I think, started to really, really uh, redirect my life to make that more, more and more clear. JP, I love that. I just, I appreciate that perspective. I, I think what what sometimes the debate and the conversation misses is we're supposed to be discerning. And man, if a tool can advance the gospel, I think we're hard pressed to find a saint who wasn't presented with a tool that could advance the gospel, who said, nah, never mind. I mean, you think about it, like, we have saints who invent an entire alphabet so, so they can proclaim and then provide written, you know, the written word of God to, to people. Yeah, again, to say nothing of John Paul II's call for us to engage in media and to utilize some of the tools that are new at our disposal. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're on pretty solid ground there, but it is, it's an undeniable fact that there's often a resistance within church culture to make use of those tools. Yeah, it, it starts to lead to questions that the church has offered sort of uh, some liberty around, where right? sometimes it leads to a question on on the nature of grace's interaction with free will and, and God's sovereignty, right? And and yeah, uh, and and on this side of the eschaton, we're not going to be able to answer that question definitively, and so uh, I, I I do. Uh, believe it very much a moral obligation for us to to use all of the tools that that are available to us that are morally appropriate uh, to yeah. uh, to advance certainly advance the gospel right and you know uh, I had you know Jim four I guess it was now fourteen years ago that when I was in the midst of working in the political world God sort of redirected me on this to start rethinking this I, I had um, I have one sister. Uh, five boys in my family, one sister. Her marriage had failed. Uh, she was mm -hmm. in a, an abusive marriage. Well, those who are in abusive marriages uh, or those who are listening who know people who have been oftentimes know that when you're in an abusive marriage, shame is normative and you hide the abuse yeah. from everybody you know. Right. And especially so we didn't know what people was going of faith. On. Right. Especially people of faith. You know, right. it's like it's sure. my fault. And yeah. Sure, sure, sure. And and so she had become she had become homeless at, and uh, had her four kids with her still. And so so in a moment of she was suffering from uh, PTSD and, and in a moment of clarity of mind, she called my wife and I and asked us to take in her four kids. And mm -hmm. we ended up doing that. And my I was on board with the short term, not on board with the long term. And mm -hmm. And my wife picked them up the next morning from the Quantico train station near her house. Just we we saw what happens when kids lose mom and dad, uh, yeah. Or or when it when there's <clears throat> that kind of family trauma and and uh, and just the wounds are 
so significant for these kids. And and uh, anyways, it had become clear to us that this was going to have to be a, a longer term situation. And uh, yeah. uh, my wife was the one who prevailed on on me that this was what we had to do, even though they weren't her blood relation. And so mm. in the few years that followed that, we had some good friends in our parish. There are three divorces that occurred within a few years of that moment. Two of those three, we knew they were NFP practicing. They had all of the right externals, kids going to Newman guide schools, right? Like it just one of them yeah. was a the leader in the men's group, the dad. Right. Checking and, all the boxes. Um, and there was a, a divorce in all three situations um, where it just surprised the heck out of us, right? Mm-hmm. And I started to ask the question. I uh, felt uh, convicted that there had to be something more we could we could do. And that there were mm-hmm. that a lot of, I, I spoke to a guy who was a, a Texas oil guy uh, years and years ago. He said, you know, JP, trying to uh, change the country by focusing on politics is a lot like trying to change the weather by playing with a thermometer. And um, oh, <laughs> that's started, awesome. Yeah, I started started thinking about, you know, a few things affect the culture, right? The weather or climate, quite like the family, right? And um, there's just reams of data there. And so it led me to, I I got a phone call from a place called the Philanthropy Roundtable. And they, the president there was looking for a new chief operating officer. I told him, look, I'm interested in using a lot of of the experiences in my life of using husbanding resources, running campaigns in terms of, you know, uh, developing and deploying a strategy, uh, and using best in use tools. I, I'd like to try to apply this to trying to sh- strengthen the family and strengthen churches. And I didn't know exactly what it looked like, but I really wanted to work yeah. with some philanthropists who could work creatively with me on that. And uh, to his credit, his name's Adam Myerson. He said, he said, yeah, go, let's go for it. And he uh, hired me and and uh, we started a number of, of projects. We raised and spent about $20 million in three and a half years and spent it four years. And we found a lot of things that didn't work and some things that did. I think that's really fun. Not only did you raise $30 million, you spent it in four years. Yeah, it was, it was, it was 20. We raised and spent it. Okay. It was 20. Yeah. We raised it. We we, we raised actually the, the most of it was, was, was raised within the first year and the rest of it was deploying it over the next several years. And, um, uh, I can tell you with great confidence, I could list you many things that don't work whatsoever, Jim. I can I can go through a lot of things that are really ineffective. And, yeah. um, you know, it was fun working with business guys. We worked with entrepreneurs on the project. And the great thing about entrepreneurs is entrepreneur, you're, if you're an entrepreneur, you, you know that that there's high risk to any new business. Yeah. And so their their question wasn't whether or not we would fail, but how fast we would fail and how fast we would iterate. And we found, right. and uh, you know, yeah. we iterated, iterated, and we found some things, thanks be to God, that did work. We, we created the uh, the largest privately funded marriage strengthening project in the country's history. And we ended up lowering the divorce rate in, a, in an NFL market by 24% in three years in Jacksonville, Florida. And yeah. talk, um, talk about that. I love that story. And I think that, that's how I first really got connected and turned on to, to your work. Tell people a little bit about that story. Cause you're like, you said it so fast. You're like, yeah, we, we lowered the divorce rate in Jacksonville, Florida. They're like, what? Like sure. break that out a little bit. Oh yeah. So when we got started, we, 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 we had these cities that we called cultural enterprise zones. So I can kind of walk them back a second. I knew the types of tools. We knew the types of tools we wanted to use. So we, we knew advanced marketing tools, uh, market, doing market research. We, we hired a company called the right brain people. To, to try to understand the behavioral drivers 
of, mm-hmm. of consumer behavior. And they had done work for 22 of the top 40 advertisers in the country. They, in the 80s, they, their research created the value meal. They uh, saved the Corvette. They'd done stuff for Walmart. Some really wow. big, big dogs, but yeah. the owner of it was is pro was a pro life grad of of Notre Dame and and was hired by the Vitae Foundation to reposition the pro life movement in the early nineties, focused around how abortion hurts women. So if you've ever heard yeah. messaging, yes. right, like abortion hurts women, women deserve better, that all comes from his research, right? So That's we hired awesome. him as a for instance to try to understand what are the emotional drivers of why young people don't go to church, do go to church, why they get married, why they don't get married, why they cohabit. We spent, gosh, a good amount of money on that research. We did. We created a bunch of tools that we knew ministries wouldn't normally be able to have access to. And we sort of gave them in different ways, this in-kind support. We created a competitive situation where organizations had to come in to win grants to work in our cultural enterprise zones. And then what became Communio deployed a lot of micro-targeted marketing and outreach on behalf of those ministries in a given city, right? You learned a lot of things. One of informed the creation of our ministry engagement ladder, informed the formation of our full circle relationship ministry approach. You know, one of the things uh, we, as a for instance, we learned is as silly as it sounds, you can't immediately accelerate to teaching people things, right? Anybody listening to this podcast who works in discipleship already knows this. Yeah. Okay, well, we had to spend some money to realize it ourselves. You know, there was a lot of data that says if you go consume eight hours or more of relationship skills practice, the likelihood, there's that secular mm-hmm. academic literature that, that shows if you do that, your likelihood of getting divorced falls to the floor and your marital satisfaction goes through the roof, right? There's a lot of data. Wow. Okay. Yes. Wait, say, say that again. It's like, it's a eight hours or more in skills. Eight to 12 training. hours. It depends the research. They say between eight and 12 hours. If you practice relationship skills, Okay. Like communication. uh, Okay. So communication, conflict resolution, uh, setting and meeting each other's expectations, things like relationship management, like, like managing your own relationship. How do you, how do you spend time together? Just there's skills there, right? There's skills. Sometimes as Catholics, we forget that grace builds on nature, right? And the culture has destroyed so much of human nature around relationships that, uh, that, that needs to be built and formed. And so so what we knew in the in the re- research was okay. Let's get people through that that amount of time. And what we realized was it's hard to get adults to go through any class, right, of anything. Yeah. And then when you when you say let's get married men to work on their marriage, then you, they, the level of difficulty moves up to like splitting an atom, right? Like it's really really a challenge, yeah. right? And so what we learned gradually, and this is going to sound silly and and maybe some people would see this as pejorative but i i don't intend it that way right like i've got a labradoodle and when my labradoodle gets sick i have to give it medicine well what i don't do is just hand a pill to my uh, labradoodle and tell him to chew it right you got to put it in a little treat thing container right so to, to close up the the pill and then you hand it to the dog right so so what we gradually learned was you you needed to uh alter the culture within a church so that there's an expectation that this is what everybody does. And then you you had to create a situation where people ran to marriage ministry rather than running from marriage ministry. Yeah. And as Catholics especially, but we work with our organizations ecumenical, we work with uh, evangelical churches and Catholic churches. What we often want to do is go, okay, let's just start with the marriage program. And then somebody runs, you know, invites people to a marriage retreat and says, well, nobody came. And so nobody wants to do this. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, and, and so they're not wrong. 
that nobody wants to do this, but you have to actually, the answer to it is not to give up. The answer to it is you actually have to create a uh, a parish culture where it becomes normative, where people actually find yeah. it's fun. It's a, a community of couples who who enjoy spending time together and then uh, and then enjoy investing and growing in their in their vocation, right? Yeah. Well, it's like it's actually getting people on the retreat or in the class. That's like step seven, you know, and we're yeah. and we yes. want to go straight there. And, I mean, I love it. It's got to be it had to have been so frustrating at first. Just like, oh, my gosh, we've got this research. We know what people want. They, you know, we spent lots of money. We have this peak statistically now into people's hearts and minds. And we know what helps if they just practice this. But you yeah. also had to learn one more lesson. Like, no, we we can't go straight to the retreat, to the practice marriage you know, relationship skills. There's stuff that has to precede it. You gotta lay, talk, yeah, you got to lay the groundwork. That's right. Talk about that because you you use this term. Uh, you, you talk about the, the, the ministry engagement ladder, which yeah. I love. You know, our listeners, people who are familiar with the QuipCast know we, we love the, the term clear path of discipleship. Very, very similar concept. This, this, you know, pathway ladder that helps people engage and grow through a deepening process. Break out what you found yeah. and these steps that like have to precede the, oh, now I'm ready for the class. Yeah. You know what? And and the, uh, I'm going to answer this by uh, some, some prologue, right? So let, let's just recognize that as Catholics, I... We have been the world's most effective evangelists throughout human history, right? This Amen. comes back to the time building on the example of Jesus, right? He he served into felt needs, right? And that was, you know, there might be the lame and the sick and and, and the healings that would follow. And, and those obviously those works of uh works of wonder created a great following, right? And uh, and developed tremendous trust. What the great evangelists didn't just start off, especially when working in Gentile circles, they had to uh, develop trust to share yeah. the gospel, right? And in our own day, Catholicism is growing so rapidly in Africa. And it's not because a Catholic missionary walked off a plane, pulled out the catechism and started quoting it mm -hmm. uh, in a village, right? They, they saw that there was a need. They saw the need and there might be, the, the need in that village might be they don't, they don't have enough reliable drinking water and clean drinking water. So mm -hmm. they'll help dig a well, right? There may not be enough food. Okay. They'll teach them better gardening and, and agricultural techniques, right? They'll fill a need. Okay. So with that sort of by way of prologue, we don't have in our current situation, the kind of poverty that sub-Saharan. Okay. But yeah, uh, mother Teresa said, in, in, gosh, in 2004, she said, I call loneliness, the leprosy of the West. Okay. And, wow. and she said that in so many ways, it is worse than our poor of Calcutta. Okay. And, and <laughs> that is so, that is so intense. Yeah. But true. It, it is. It is. In fact, jumping to, to some science around that, uh, around the truth that St. Mother Teresa talked about, if you are fit into, there's measures, there's academic measures of loneliness. Yeah. And if you fit into them, your lifespan is going to be 15 years shorter than yeah. someone who does not. Okay. And when we talk about the epidemic of, of fentanyl and opioids and mm -hmm. um, suicide, this is uh, in fundamentally the nihilism of the world around uh, around relationships. And I want to double click on on sexual relationships. Right, we're told that the greatest good that we can have is sexual fulfillment. 
And mm-hmm. that sexual fulfillment is whatever we want, uh, however uh, we might want it, not recognizing that oftentimes it can lead to great suffering and pain, right? And hardship, right? So yeah. the church has so much to to share on that, right? Okay, so so how, what does that all have to do with the ministry engagement ladder, right? Which is which is sort of a core core learning of ours is that okay, we want to create a situation one where people run to rather than run from the church and run to mm-hmm. the ministry rather than run from it, right? And so the first step is we invite people to something fun and engaging, ninety percent fun, ten percent enrichment, okay most frequently around families and relationships. Okay. okay. So we might, that might 90, 10, 90%. 90, 10. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then we do a lot of training with churches around hospitality, right? And hospitality comes from the Greek word of love of stranger, right? It's a, it's a it's mm. Christian idea, right? And so, so we know a big part of what we do is have to help equip a church to do hospitality really well. Right. And, and create those interlocking relationships where we can personally invite people back to that next step, which is the ongoing engagement, right? Developing a a community of either singles or couples or a mix. It depends what the church is trying to do when we work with them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where there's still, now this goes to 70, 30, 70% fun, 30% enrichment. Okay. It might be a parish that we're working with is doing this month, a hoedown and they're having uh, line dancing. This is in Florida, not not yeah, Nebraska. Yeah, but not New York. Not New York parishes. No, no. We, who, you know, we might do something else there. But but this is um, when we work with them. That they come for the fun, but then we drop in a skills activity for all the couples to do. Okay, yeah. that might be relationship management skills exercise. It might be a communication skills exercise. Right. All these skills exercises fundamentally at at, at root is helping a couple become friends or cultivate their friendship and deepen an intimate friendship with each other. That's really humanity. What a one. Right. And so often it's become increasingly hard for people to do that. Right. And so then that leads to the next step, right. Which is, is what we call the growth journey. Okay. That's what frequently a church will call the program. That's oftentimes where they start. Okay. We talk about layering the growth journey with our churches, which means offering at least three different ways for folks to, to do it. Okay. It might be mm-hmm. a parish-wide retreat. It might be a multi-week series. It might be something they can do self-guided at home on their own. Okay. There's different ways to do it. Right. Uh, the but that, key is that a personal invitation. Yeah. And that essential content is delivered not just one way, but several ways. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Right. And it. that's the latter, but it obviously it, it fuels and is built around felt need when we work with a parish, for instance. Okay. We use a model that tries to help us understand we look at a community. Uh, we've built several ministry models. One model is looking at the consumer data to say, who is married in the community that looks like someone who has gotten divorced in the last 12 months? Meaning their consumer spending habits, their self-identifying data looks like someone who recently got divorced. All the data we use is consent-based data. Okay, it's all compliant right. with the California Consumer Privacy Act. But we can use this. It's actually fairly simple data that we can use and identify big risk areas. And one yeah, of the biggest that's ones. That's huge. Say, yeah. I love this. I mean, you can predict based off certain behaviors like, uh-oh, there's a problem here. That they're, yes. This person is following a trend line where they're, they might be headed for a divorce. Right. And this and this so, is fascinating. Break some of that out for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and look, I always if anybody this is like a really old reference now. If anybody's seen the minority report, they would uh, dating dating ourselves here. This is not the Center for Future Crime. 
Okay. If you fit into a model, <laughs> it just great. means you're at a higher likelihood to engage in the behavior that is underlying the model. Okay. It doesn't mean you're for sure going to do it. Okay. And, um, but one of the big data points that comes up is the presence of children in the home. And in particular, the presence of children under the age of two in the home. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk to a, to priests, when I talk to church leaders, I note that if you're trying to do ministry for couples and you aren't offering childcare, then you're not serious about doing ministry for couples, right? Because, yes. because in the data is we have my wife and I, we have eight kids of our own. Uh, when we had three kids, we we had three kids, kids three and under. And that was, of course, so nice. We did it twice. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, we, uh, if, if our pastor came to us, hey, JP, uh, Christina, we're, we're having childcare. There's free daycare at the parish. It just come and you got to come to this activity. He could have said anything. When I, I would have been, I would have shut right, up. Just, he would have been like, we're painting the fence. I mean, like, sounds good. I'm in. Uh, he, he could have yeah, said, we're going to handwrite the book of Leviticus, it. right? Like I would have been like, sure. It sounds good. You're watching my three-year-old. <laughs> and so in the 18 month, yeah. especially the 18 month kid, when parents have young kids, if you think about it, that is when we've, we're making the least money in our life, usually. Mm-hmm. And where we're the most physically exhausted from sleep deprivation yes. and the stress relating to to all of these things, okay. So so when when a parish is on mission, they think creatively about ways to solve for these problems so that they can do real ministry that lit, gets led on target, right? Yeah. Um, we, we just get great feedback from our from our churches where the, so many of our parishes that we work with are growing with young families because they're actually feeding. The couples who yeah. are oftentimes not, you know, they're oftentimes staying, staying, uh, staying away from, from church because they're too stressed out. Yeah. Well, and it's not reasonably accessible. I mean, I remember, you know, my wife and I, we'd have a, the same phenomenon. We're like, well, I don't know. Do you go? Do I go? Do we drop 50 bucks on a babysitter and pizza? And it was this, even if, if one of us would go, it would be pulling us away from each other. That's to try right. and access something at the parish. Yeah, that. I, by the way, you, you just hit on something that's so central to my big giant beef with parish life. Think about how much ministry that does exist in the parish that pulls couples away from each other. Men's ministry, yeah. women's oh, ministry, yeah. as as two great examples. Youth ministry it pulls the child away from the parents. All three of those for for just a moment. I do not have a vocation to be a man. I have a vocation to be a married man. Right, that's my vocation. Mm-hmm. And how are we nurturing that vocation, right? I note when I talk to bishops and priests that Mother Church understands that when a priest becomes ordained, when a man becomes ordained, there needs to be a rule of life, right? Mm -hmm. And they're canonically required to go on a spiritual retreat each year. They're canonically required to do the liturgy of the hours. They're canonically required to do the mass every day. When I get married, I'm canonically required to do almost nothing, right? I have to go to mass each week, right? And, um, I got to, you know, receive the Eucharist during uh, the Easter season, which implies that I should be getting to confession, I guess, at least once a year. But beyond mm-hmm. that, there's, there's, you know, it's sort of like you're married. We'll see you when you're dead, sort of like vocation help. And so what I note is how often do we, if, if you were at mass, I call this the donut test. If you're, if you're uh, go to mass on Sunday afterwards, you're having a donut and someone says to you, my wife and I, we went to a, a marriage class last weekend or a marriage retreat last weekend, what's the first thing that comes to your mind if someone says that to you? The probably. Oh, yeah. Probably. The, the, you want the honest answer. Yeah, the oh, honest God. answer. Gosh, gosh, what's wrong? 
Right. Exactly. No, no. I, we ask this question. At I'm so every sorry. Single church we go to. <laughs> I say, if your answer is that they must be having a problem, then you're part of the problem, and the yeah. parish failed the donut test. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. And, and 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 we say, you know, we give talking points, for instance, to Father. There's a great anal- analog in the Catholic life because sometimes priests think, I'm not married. I, you know, I can't really speak a lot into this. Your vocation essentially makes you married to the church, right? And and Holy Mother Church wants you to go on a spiritual retreat. In fact, requires you each year. When your priest comes back from a spiritual retreat, do you turn and say, wow, gosh, Father, is something wrong? You uh, want a retreat? Is you like, are you, uh, that's really whole week. not good. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. No, um, no, no. They, they, well, if they do, they're misinformed, right? But, but that's not the normative expectation for people investing in their spiritual health. Right. We have a um, culture we can celebrate that for right. a priest, but why not for a married couple? No, that's right. That's right. So uh, one of the, the the things that we say optically, right, there's sort of three legs within a ministry. We talk about vision, skills, and community. The vision, there needs to be an offensive, positive vision for marriage and healthy relationships in the parish, okay? And it's this, there should be an expectation that everybody in this parish, everybody practices the skills of having a a great relationship and a great marriage, right? So if you're a married person, that means if you've got a good car, you don't wait for smoke to come out of the hood to bring it into the garage, right? Like you bring it in regularly and you service it, right? If you've got a yeah. great car, you want it to keep running great. That's what you do. You 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 invest in maintenance of the car. And if you're healthy, that's great. You want to stay healthy, so you do proper diet and exercise, right? Like all, yeah. if you've got a good marriage, that's great. Then marriage ministry is for you. It's for everybody. You know, JP, I've got a I, I wasn't planning on this, but I have to share a little bit of a testimony. I mean, I, I need to count it, but I think my wife and I, Kim, have been to counseling three, four, maybe times uh, throughout our marriage, been married for 20 years. And every single time, if you had asked us or a friend, like, well, gosh, like, are you guys okay? I'm like, yeah, actually, we would say our relationship, we just decided to do it to counseling. And we would say our relationship physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's the best it's ever been. We just want more. Yes. Um, but yes. <laughs> but I feel the need to like, you know, like, hey, we're going to counseling. I mean, it, it, it's okay. We're just, <laughs> and right. not that and, there isn't stuff. Yeah, not, know this. Not, not something wrong. It's just that we want more. Even we, though we, and we know this in the spiritual life, right? We know this in the spiritual life. I, I, for one, have certainly not ascended to the unitive way, and perhaps some of your listeners have, but in our own, uh, in our vocation, my vocation, again, is being a, is a married husband, right? We should take the approach that we're always looking, we're looking for constant improvement, right? If you're in business yeah. right now, and you're listening to this, you don't want to rest on your laurels, you want to continuously improve, right? The biggest, yeah. as the old saying goes, the, the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement, right? Yeah. And um, uh, that as Catholics through our sacramental marriage, right? This is means through which God has wanted me to grow in discipleship with him through. Yeah. This is my, this is, this is his plan for holiness for me. Right. Exactly. So, so we don't at the parish level, we, and we offer men's groups. We often offer women's groups. What are we doing for our couples now? And I want to even step back from that because a big point of emphasis for us, Jim, is that so few people are getting married now that when we work with a parish, we use yeah. the term full circle, right? 
for all of the full continuum of relationship life. Okay. We all know how often are we told pray for vocations, right? And we, they almost mm-hmm. exclusively usually means priesthood and religious life. And um, since the year 1970, there are 38% fewer ordinations on a year in and year out basis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm here to tell you is we're crushing it with priestly vocations when you compare it to the marital vocation, right? Since the same year, okay, the rate of Catholic weddings has dropped 77%. Okay, that's double. We, we are wow. we are falling twice as fast in marital vocations as priestly vocations. So this is the point I, I make. Priests don't, they don't like self-generate. This isn't like a, some video game where they pop out of the of some sort of you know, uh, a corner yeah. of the game. They, 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 they come from holy families, right? And yeah. the, in a certain sense, I would argue we are getting twice as much fruit out of the number of marriages that exist. And so, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, "Boy, I gotta, we gotta get more vocations," and you don't have an offensive plan to increase marital vocations, then I'm sorry, I'm, I'm here to tell you you're being dumb. Okay, just just to be blunt, like JV, pre- don't don't sugarcoat it. Just no, on. I know it's just you know you know this is this is we're just this is real talk with JP here and Jim. So yeah, <laughs> but but you know you, the how many times in so many dioceses you know you you see certain families that generate a couple vocations right? Like I, I'm in the diocese of Arlington, uh, which is a, a phenomenal place and um, huge Catholic homeschool community out here of which we're part. I think uh, most of the, the ordinations are coming from the homeschool community. And um, and yeah. what do we know about the homeschool community? They're married moms and dads, okay? And they're sacramental marriages. So there's, yeah. this is not a, a great mystery. And and if what many di- directors of, of vocations know is there's a lot that you have to do to cultivate vocations, right? Mm-hmm. There's a sort of pre-evangelization, if it will, if you will, yeah. about laying the groundwork for uh, planting the seeds, right, of vocation. And if we can do that with influencing men to give up a life of a of, of sacramental marriage for the life of a sacramental holy orders, then couldn't we also actually increase the number of people getting married if we focused on actually promoting the vocation of marriage itself? And so that's what one of the things yeah. that we do, and we talk to uh, priests about my, my brother's parish. So I jokingly say I'm not just the hair club president, also a client here. My <laughs> um my my brother is a as I noted is a Catholic pastor, and we work with his parish and. We've been dramatically increasing, uh, for instance, the sacramental convalidations. We have, uh, they had six convalidations all of last year. And just through the first three months of this year, now we're much further into it. So I haven't gotten a head count lately, but they were at 13 through the first 90 days of people asking for, right? You know, wow. convalidation, yeah. you have to start a process. Right, right? it takes a while, um, yeah. But but there's was 13 new ones in the first 90 days of the year because they were championing marriage and holding it up, right? Uh, we've worked yeah. with parishes that have quadrupled the number of sacramental weddings that they've done, not through convalidations, but just being intentional about it. The reality is, is the world is educating our people on yeah. courtship, on the hookup culture, uh, the most common situation where people report having sex for the first time is before a relationship begins. That's what the social science says. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, like they're uh, not don't, even dating. Right. If we're not talking about and helping teach uh, those who are not married how to form healthy relationships. Now, how do you do that? 
People don't like to go to classes to learn how to date people. Okay, we know that. We've tried that. Yeah, yeah. There's ways that you can instruct and form. And, and we work with churches to form those kinds of avenues so that you can influence uh, and, and increase the likelihood that people get married. JP, can you give an example of that? Because I mean, I've got an imagination for this. I've seen some of these creative ministries. But what does it practically look like to do that kind of, uh, I'll call it outreach. It's more than simply outreach, but give people a picture of like, what is that, you know, what does that look yeah, like to do that, that, that type of ministry? Yeah. So, so we oftentimes at the first rung of the ladder on outreach, some churches that we work with will be offensive and focusing on couples right off the blocks. We oftentimes <laughs> say, keep the funnel wide at the bottom. Um, uh, and so for instance, might be a, a fun outreach for uh, around Oktoberfest, drinking with the saints. It could be a, a fall festival of some sort. Okay. And um, uh, we set up a process for capturing everybody on the registration side. Uh, we create an ambassador system. Uh, we work with the, tr- the parish to, to create a hospitality strategy for folks who come. Uh, we drop in uh, at fun activities that um, have that 10% element, some sort of communication activity. Yeah, that little bit of training in relational health. Right. Or or it could be as simple as question. Uh, We we set up what are called question three packs, right? We just have a conversation. If you're single, you Mm. came to the event, you're probably, there's there's probably somebody else there you can talk to. And we create these discussion uh, three packs. Okay. And then we create a, um, the ongoing engagement is, it might be dance lessons. It might be bags and brews. It could be a, a, a cornhole tournament. It could be a series of, I know so many parishes that do theology on tap or some sort of activity like that. Uh, but it's like that we, next level. It's the next level. I, we caution on, you know, the term theology on tap. Partially mm-hmm. remember that even amongst millennials, 60% of millennials don't have a college degree. Okay. So the substance, mm-hmm. a lot of times Catholic young adult activities actually are really targeted towards the college educated Mm-hmm. And you're most most people aren't college educated. That's just the, the reality in, in the overall population. Oh, and so coming huge. up yeah. with content that is intended to uh, be more broadly applicable. Okay. Um, so what we're working on doing in the, this ongoing engagement time where there's fun, where there's some substance, we're trying to move people, right? This is not rocket science. We're trying to move people into groups. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, and for the types of a group content. There's a number of different types of group content. I love my co-authors a resource called the RAM series, which RAM stands for relationship mm-hmm. attachment model. And uh, it's a small group piece of content that you do. And we always note that you make the small group. Uh, one of the big reasons people go to small groups isn't because of the content necessarily. It's because of the communio, right? Which yeah, is why we call it the community. Okay. Yes. So, so that should be thinking about Okay, the small group, how do you still structure the small groups? It's still 50-50 fun to content, right? Yeah. And we oftentimes get these groups going through things like supper clubs, dinner clubs, uh, rotating different people's homes. Uh, But but now uh, you've got community built. Yes. And the formation, one, not only do they desire it now at this point, but it's in a a communal context where it's going to stick and be reinforced in in a little subculture. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you an example of one of, one of the churches we worked with that that we loved on the ongoing engagement is they just created a, a a space where there was a monthly young adult community series where there was just something fun each week, but they anchored it within about a 10 or 15 minute message around relationships that led to just table conversation around the message. Okay. Yeah. So think more Socratic than didactic. 
And so without having to tell people they shouldn't be cohabitating, right? Once you start understanding the data around cohabitation, then all of a sudden the singles start coming up and realizing we had this, this is an evangelical church, people who are cohabiting showing up saying, you know, we probably shouldn't be doing this. This isn't actually a great idea. This is and not helpful. Coming, this is actually, yeah, this is going to be really problematic, right? And so you, you, we saw great success stories where uh, uh, cohabiting couples just stopped cohabiting uh, awesome. as a consequence. Oh, that's so good, JP. We could t- we could talk for hours on this. Again, I just I love the way you've been able to position people's felt need for connection, community, re- relationship. You've been able to help, like establish relational health as this bridge to the gospel. How how can someone get a hold of you, Comunio? Like if they if they want to hear more, where do they go? Yeah. Well, first go to Comunio.org, uh, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-O. I would encourage anybody listening to pick up the book, Endgame Book. Yeah. Uh, you can go to endgamebook.org, endgamebook.org. A big thing I would to, to note, this is not the felt need around relationships is an ancillary, of course. Um, what we find in the research and we unpack it uh, in Endgame, if you're a millennial or you're a baby boomer, you go to church every single week at this, almost the exact same rate. If I know one thing about both of you, and that is if you grew up in a constantly married home, there's no difference in the frequency that you go to, almost no difference in the frequency that you go to church. Yeah. Okay. What's changed our last 60 years is family structure and our continued failure to recognize that the fruits of the sexual revolution, right? And uh, and the breakdown of healthy relationships and marriage is not a nice thing that we should try to prioritize at some point, but first let's go evangelize. It is actually the normative thing that we have to be doing. We have to repair that cadence. And it shouldn't be any surprise that the Pope who most vocally mm-hmm. called for the new evangelization uh, was also fundamentally uh, the Pope of marriage and the family. And that, and so, you know, at, at the end of the day, the new evangelization has to be a nuptial movement if it's going to bear fruit and be anything other than a, a corporate slogan for the church. Yeah. JB, that's deep stuff. I feel like, ah, let's do this again. We need to, we need to have a, another conversation here because there's just, there's so much here. And I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm convicted by, by what you say. I mean, that, that stat is astounding. People are like, well, you know, millennials and baby boomers, they're like they go to church at the same rate if they grew up in a constantly married home. That alone is just, a, that's astounding. We're going to be releasing at the uh, before the end of the year a new report that will just really spike the ball on this. I know there's some people listening who are going to say a correlation, not causation. I, I don't have any time for that. 100% of causation has correlation. And what we're seeing in the churches that we work with, because we run the surveys, between 85 and 90% of Catholics in the pews on Sunday are from intact families. Yeah. We're going to be uh, releasing that near the end of the year it'll become dispositive. Folks can, t- can continue to ignore it, but they'll be basically uh, burying their heads in the sand if they do. Yeah. JP, this is this has been great. Thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, again, communio.org, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-O.org, and endgamebook.org. Great. Highly recommend. Go, go check it out. I'm, I'm hoping this starts a conversation and has stirred some people's imagination. Thanks so much. Really appreciate Jim. Great to be here. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. All right, everybody, you know, somebody needs 
to hear this. So put the dog leash tied, tied around a tree, pull over, uh, send this out to somebody who needs to hear. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you.